Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. This is a test now, right? This is a test. Yes, uh, there's, uh, there's agreement now. We'll head down this net zero path. But I've got a prediction. This is going to end in tears. I'm sticking to my guns because I do think we're going to need some common sense very soon. This country's about to go through the school of hard knocks starting when the Liddell coal-fired power station starts shutting down within a year's time. We are not ready for that, as was demonstrated by the explosion at Calide C in Queensland this year, which turned off the lights in Queensland and led to record electricity prices in the months after. We're going to have a planned explosion effectively there next year at Liddell at a power station about the same size uh, near Joel. It might be just outside Joel's electric. No, it's in my electric. It's in his electric. And uh, that's that's. I, I think we're going to end up like Europe, Paul. We're going to have skyrocketing power prices. We don't have enough gas. You, uh, New South Wales become a mendicant state already in terms of energy. You talk about Matt Keane, the energy, or used to be the energy minister there. He gets all his energy from Queensland. He gets all his electricity from coal-fired power stations in Queensland. He gets all his gas from Queensland. Europe. They don't make any energy. And eventually that's going to run out. And what happens then? The lights go out. Our factories close. We struggle to distribute food around the country like Europe is doing right now. Well, welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast that brings you the insights the mainstream media ignore. We've got a packed show this week, so let's dive right in. Now, the voice that you just heard for those listening on the audio stream was that of the Nationals Senator for Queensland, Matthew Canavan. A Canavan is proving to be a modern day prophet. He is the exception to the rule of everything I'm about to say now. Now, many Christians and conservatives are wondering what on earth the Liberal and the National parties actually stand for these days. Just as in the same-sex marriage debate, the coalition's capitulation on net zero came swiftly. Like same-sex marriage, the Liberals and the Nationals promised for years they would fight to stop it from happening. It would never happen but it did. Now, Labor and the Liberals are on the same social and economic policy unity ticket. What's left for the base? As we've seen time and time again, globalist uh, elite opinion and the mainstream media barracking is too strong for the Liberals. Whenever will and courage is required, conservative politicians cave. Labor and the Greens, they don't need courage because they don't understand or don't care about the consequences. Will to power is all for them. The net zero policy makes net zero sense. The best explanation Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce could come up with was that it's better to be inside the tent. The trouble with politics is that silence is the price you pay for being one of the cool kids. We won't see what Barnaby does behind closed doors and he won't be able to talk about it afterwards because of cabinet solidarity. Countries further down the decarbonisation path like the UK are experiencing an energy shortage because of a wind drought and high gas prices. How will going to Glasgow this weekend make life better for ordinary Australians? As Greens leader Adam Bant pointed out in the parliament just this past week, the Glasgow crowd have already moved beyond net zero by 2050. They are now demanding a reduction of 74% of our emissions by 2030, just nine years away. Bant is introducing legislation to ban coal mining as we speak. Nothing we do to hurt ourselves will satisfy the Greens. 
Now, did I mention the Greens also led the charge on same-sex marriage for years and years with the same legislative and media tactics? Like now, no one talked them, took them seriously until it was too late. Once achieved, did they stop at redefining marriage? No, they now want taxpayer-funded sex change operations for your kids without your permission. But Bant doesn't care in the same way he doesn't care if we don't have baseload electricity in nine years' time. Ideology trumps evidence. Already the UN is telling us we will have to cut our meat consumption to save the planet. One thing we do know is that every development project post Glasgow will have the net zero ruler run over it. This will be an expensive handbrake on new dams, farms, mines and energy intensive manufacturing. Anything that creates wealth and jobs will have unnecessary, unnecessary lead in its saddlebags. We've been told we have no choice because the whole world is moving to a new energy economy. Well, they said the whole world was moving to redefine marriage as well. We'd be a pariah state if we didn't move too. Now, there is no renewable technology that can provide baseload power apart from hydro, but we live on the driest cottony on earth. Net zero is about as nutty as a bloke giving birth, but to be part of polite society, we must pretend that it is so and radically restructure reality. Couldn't we have just stood apart from the crowd? Couldn't government have just leveled with the Australian people? Instead of being driven by the polls, which ask people loaded questions about imminent climate catastrophes. Surely if Australians knew that net zero was a slogan with a very high and unrealistic price tag, the polls would be different. If only they knew that the polar bears are fine and so is the reef. But sadly, like so many of the other debates being pushed by the radical left, conservative politicians are as absent as is the truth. Watching the Liberals and the Nationals roll over to net zero is almost identical to watching them when they rolled over on same-sex marriage back in 2017. There was faux global momentum in other woke nations. There were trite slogans and parliamentary tactics, but no debate about the consequences. Now we have gender fluid ideology being taught to children, free speech quashed, and the Morrison government uh, ministers who now support commercial surrogacy so two blokes can acquire children. The consequences of net zero will be a stronger China because the Communist Party is not as stupid as us. Uh, it will be the harmoning of re regional economies and expensive and unreliable electricity for everyone. It is not a conspiracy theory to say that radical left's economic and social policy agenda is driven through unelected global forums like the UN's COP26. It's just how it works these days. But we are a sovereign nation and we should value that. It should not be surrendered because global elites decree it. Elites have led us down the wrong path on social policy and now on economic policy. Both paths are the road to ruin. In both cases, the will and courage of good people folded. Pre-implantation genetic testing for families who are going through IVF. Uh, that means that uh, if uh, there is a fertilised egg that is clear of uh, SMA or Fragile X, they can go ahead uh, with the IVF and go ahead knowing that this beautiful young child will be born free of the condition which might otherwise lead to an agonising one or two years of life. Okay, that was the Morrison government's health minister, Greg Hunt, last weekend, announcing Australia would allow human embryos to be screened so we don't have disabled people 
being born. What you heard there, folks, is the voice, and for those watching, you saw the face of modern eugenics. The Morrison government is now funding the screening of human embryos for defects. But just because technology allows it, is it ethical? We hear a lot about black lives and why they matter, which of course they do. But what about the lives of disabled people? It seems they don't because we are on a quest to eradicate them before they even draw breath. We've been doing this through prenatal testing and abortion for decades. But we are getting more sophisticated, the process more sanitised, as Hunt's words attest. He was announcing last weekend that the Morrison government will allow Medicare to pay for pre-implantation genetic testing of human embryos produced by in vitro fertilisation. This means if, a, if, a, if a, dis, a genetic disorder is picked up, the parents have the option of killing the embryo. Hunt didn't quite put it like that, but that's what his announcement is enabling. No need to even contemplate a pregnancy that might not produce a perfect baby. Again, I ask, is this ethical? What message does it send to disabled people? Hunt has announced $96 million of taxpayer funding to screen these people out. This means more children will now be born uh, free of genetic conditions. That's because the human embryos found to have disabilities will be killed. Although you won't hear Hunt talk of killing. It seems some lives are not worth living. Now PGT is carried out on five-day-old embryos, parents known to be carriers of genetic disorders that can lead to cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, fragile X, neurofibromatosis and Huntington disease can now test their embryos for free. Ones found to contain genetic disorders can be destroyed, the others implanted in the mother's womb. It is not known what people living with these diseases think of our latest move to stamp out other people like them coming into the world. Now the internet is full of beautiful stories of children living with cystic fibrosis being cared for lovingly. Muscular Dystrophy New South Wales website says, our mission is to empower, connect and support people with neuromuscular conditions and be an effective advocate for the neuromuscular community. The Morrison government's funding of PGT might put them out of business because why bother helping people with a limitation on the quality of life? According to a kid's health information fact sheet on the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital website, many children with neurofibromatosis have no or very few medical problems, but about 4 in 10 children will have some complications. But for some reason, the Morrison government wants to pay parents to screen their embryos so the option of killing them remains live. Fragile X syndrome causes intellectual disability and behavioural and learning challenges. Again, such embryos picked up by taxpayer-funded screening are for killing. We need a DLM movement, Disabled Lives Matter. That a story like this can break with no public uproar is testament to decades already of prenatal testing and abortion of disabled babies. We are desensitised. I write about how politicians defend this in Blood on Our Medicare Cards, a chapter in my book, I kid you not, notes from 20 years in the trenches of the culture wars, which describes how the government saves money by allowing disabled babies to be aborted. Killing an embryo is easier on the conscience than an unborn baby with a heartbeat and human in miniature form, hence the silence 
uh, which Greg Hunt's announcement was greeted. Wikipedia defines eugenics as a set of beliefs and practices that aim to improve the genetic quality of a human population historically by excluding people and groups judged to be inferior, promoting those judged to be superior. In my book, I quote former Senator Ron Boswell, who said of the killing of disabled babies to save money, that this is the type of thinking that was typical of the Hitler regime, end quote. Scott Morrison might be a serious Christian, but his government is not serious about upholding the dignity of the human creature. The most significant legislative achievement of the Christian Democratic Party in recent years was the passing of a bill in 2018 to outlaw modern slavery. I know the idea that there are still slaves being exploited today will come as a shock, and I'll return to this in the two interviews I have for you coming up. But first, some important background. Former CDP member of the Legislative Council, Paul Green, was the author of the Modern Slavery Bill. Sadly, the bill has not come into force because the New South Wales coalition government's heart has not really been in it. Now, the International Justice Mission stepped in and it's got Paul's bill back on the agenda and they took a creative approach to prodding the leader of the government in the upper house, Don Harwin, into action. Take a look. The world is full of dogs. Some have risen to greatness. Don Bradman was the greatest batsman of all time. Don the Duck was the second funniest duck of our generation. The Is Don Is Good Guy gave us arguably the most delicious lunch. We're calling on Minister Don Harwin to be the next great Don by proclaiming and commencing the New South Wales Modern Slavery Act. Come on, Don. Let's get it done. During the week, I spoke with the IJM's Marcus Ford. He's the Senior Manager of Government and Corporate Affairs. Well, Marcus Ford, uh, Senior Manager of Government and Corporate Relations at the International Justice Mission. Thanks very much for joining Macquarie Street. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Now, now Marcus, um, you guys are running uh, what I think has been a very clever and effective campaign to try and get the modern slavery bill uh, actually put into um, or proclaimed, I think is the the legal terminology. The bill was passed uh, in 2018, but it's been sitting on the shelf. Um, Why did you guys get involved uh, with this issue? Why did you see the need to try and give it a bit of a kickstart? It's a great question. Um, IJM was quite involved in the early drafting of uh, the original um, bill as it went through Parliament with Paul Green, uh, Christian Democrat. So one of our staff here was really heavily involved in that. And um, we were so excited when it was passed. And then since then, I think it's been 1,200 days, we've waited and we've waited and we've waited and the government went cold. Um, they described it as an orphan act. And we sort of decided, uh, now's the time, Let, let's let's uh, get this back on the radar because the COVID pandemic's kind of exacerbated some issues with slavery in the world and it was, it was time to get it back on the government's radar. So why do you think it dropped off the government's radar? It's a good question. We've uh, we've had lots and lots of theories behind the scenes as to why that might be the case. Is their heart uh, not really um, in it? Uh, is it is it Liberal Party donors? Is it the big end of town? What's going on? Yeah, oh, you could probably say a little bit of all of the above. I, I'd uh, yeah, I'd hazard a guess. Um, I think a, a big uh, component has been um, it has been a busy three years. Lots going on in the world, um, and the government uh, was focused on other issues. 
And we've been screaming, saying, look, this is equally as important as the other things you're dealing with. Um, I think there's been an appetite by some in the government to kind of bury it. They don't want to see it again. It's all too difficult. It's quite confronting. Um, but there has also been equally uh, quite a strong support in the background for the last three years, um, especially from like the more conservative ends of the Liberal Party. They've really been championing this behind the scenes. So I'm partnered with yeah. them and we've had some movement. Yeah, well, well terrific. And um, we'll, we'll play um, the clever advertisement to our audience later. But um, for a lot of people who, uh, particularly Christians who might be watching or listening to this, um, we all know about William Wilberforce, thanks to um, the film that came out uh, 10 or 12 years ago and uh, Eric Metaxas's wonderful book. And, of course, there's always been terrific biographies of Wilberforce in the past, but he, he had a sort of a resurgence in our popular consciousness. So Christians think that, you know, Wilberforce and his team of parliamentarians in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century saw slavery consigned to the dustbin of history. So it's a bit of a shock uh, today to see this being championed by groups like yourselves and the Christian Democratic Party uh, and a modern slavery bill now, you know, going through Parliament some 200 years after we thought slavery was over. What, what's going on? What have we missed here? Yeah, that's a great question. I couldn't agree more. We So often people are quite confronted when they hear, you know, slavery is uh, larger than it's ever been in history here today. Um, it wasn't solved in its entirety uh, when William Wilberforce I was on the case 200 years ago. I did such a great job, but but we're seeing at the moment there's about 40 million people trapped in slavery around the world. Um, 10 million of them are children. Many of them are women, are men. So it's it's diabolical. Um, and so yeah, now is the time to act. Like we've never there's never been a more urgent time uh, to address this issue. And I think um, for too long it's kind of since, since that Wilberforce push, it's kind of uh, played away in the darkness a lot and people are just too scared to confront it. So it went it's underground, too... Marcus, essentially. Uh, 200 years yeah. ago, we, the, the government stopped being involved in slavery and, and, it, and it went underground and, of course, uh, in a lot of developing countries. Um, what, what, what's the profile of a, a modern slave? What, what does their exploitation look like? Is it some corporate, uh, you know, glo- multinational company exploiting, you know, poor people in... in um, developing nations? What, what, what is it? What, what's the profile of a modern slave today? It's an excellent question. Um, like modern slavery is a, is a bit of an umbrella term. So there's a whole bunch of things that are captured by that from uh, human trafficking to child labor, forced labor. Um, so, so it kind of captures a whole bunch of things. Um, we here in our region, we're actually we have two thirds of the world's slaves here in our region, kind of the South Asia, Asia Pacific region. Um, the vast majority of them would be in kind of forced labor or bonded labor um, where they are um, working with either their passports stolen for no money um, they're kind of locked up they're not able to leave they might be working up to 22 hours a day um, and that could be in anything from like a brick kiln um, to harvesting in an agricultural setting to manufacturing clothing um, all the way through to um, Oh, like a lot of sex slavery exists in in those areas as well. So it it's partly a problem um, of uh, corporates and, and supply chains, but it's also partly a problem of where these kind of activities exist. Other activities like sexual slavery also tend to exist. So we see quite a strong correlation. Um, but yeah, it would be at the moment quite a large problem of corporates. I would say. Um, it's just too hard to deal with. And supply chains are complex and the world's become more global. 
And with that globalization, we are more distant from the origins of our the materials and the things that we're buying as consumers. So in some ways, it's easy just to turn a kind of a blind eye to what's going on. Yep. And that, and that's the beauty of this bill, which uh, Paul Green, uh, along with the help of a lot of people, has drafted and has successfully had passed, it shines a light on this practice and puts in place a slavery commissioner and a, and a reporting mechanism. Now, it's great that it's back on the agenda, but um, one of the troubling things that I've noticed is that the the um, Berejiklian government, the now Perrottet government, under the relevant minister, Don Harwin, who is the leader of the coalition or the leader of the Liberal Party, the leader of the government in the upper house of the New South Wales parliament, he's got carriage of an amendment to essentially water down the Act and uh, change the threshold of what's required in terms of compliance. Tell, tell our audience about what's going on there, Marcus. Yeah, so this uh, amendment bill uh, strips out quite a lot of the key provisions from the 2018 Act that passed. So what the government has uh, sought to do is pull out any kind of business transparency in supply chains. Any of that reporting is now gone. Um, they've weakened the anti-slavery provisions, uh, the anti-slavery commissioner provisions slightly because that business reporting the thresholds have now gone. There's no penalties because there's no businesses. That's now gone. Um, there are some good things that they put in that we weren't expecting, but since the original act passed in 2018, there was Commonwealth legislation that came into force. Um, so there is a degree to which that captures some of the businesses and commercial uh, entities that the New South Wales bill originally intended to capture. The argument the government is now giving, or the New South Wales government is giving us, is that um, it is more fitting that that is left up to the Commonwealth level. Um, and so we're going to strip all of that back and we're going to basically only focus on government procurement now. Um, so in some ways it makes sense, except for the New South Wales legislation uh, said that it would be a $50 million consolidated revenue, so kind of annual revenue for a company, was the threshold at which you would then have to start reporting. Um, and at the Commonwealth level, it's 100 million. So just in New South Wales alone, 1,700 uh, entities that aren't captured, 1,700 less companies that aren't reporting, um, which is a massive deal. Big, we're big procurers of goods here. It's, it's a big deal. This, but this is almost rendering the Modern Slavery Act um, almost meaningless apart from you know, a, a tiny portion of companies at the very top tier. Mm. Yeah, it, it certainly does. It, it certainly makes the uh, it certainly makes um, the business provisions well, they're non-existent, as I said. But um, it, its focus has shifted kind of well away from that to government procurement now, which is something that we are very happy to see. I think um, most people would probably uh, agree uh, that we don't want taxpayer dollars spent on uh, goods and services that might have slavery in their supply chain. That should just be kind of baseline normal. Um, and so it's good that there's, there is a stronger focus on that in some senses, but we have lost out all of those business provisions, um, which do exist at the Commonwealth level, but are so much weaker than what we had here in New South Wales. Yeah, this is a real problem. It sounds like our work is only uh, just being, and I do speak, um, I'll play uh, later in the program my interview with uh, Paul Green, the author of, of the bill. But uh, the point that he made, and I think it's a good point, at least, and, and thanks to, you know, the work of IJM and, and others, um, it looks like we're going to get the bill proclaimed. It's, it's going to be enacted. Uh, but there is a review provision. So it sounds like, you know, we've all got our work cut out to make sure that um, this 
legislation really does have teeth into the future. It looks like we're just getting a little foothold here, but we're going to have to keep doing our work on behalf of exploited people because uh, sadly this bill uh, is, is really being defanged, it would seem. Absolutely. It's completely lost its teeth. Um, it's just kind of now looking at government departments and procurement lines and, and that's it. So um, one of the things that we're, we're really asking the government is if they're going to strip that out, we, we want them to make a really solid case to the Commonwealth government that uh, when the Commonwealth Act is up for a review in the middle of next year, that that threshold needs to be dropped to 50 million yeah. and that there needs yeah. to be penalties for non-compliance. So if the New South Wales government wants to defer to the Commonwealth for the commercial entities, then we're, we're really asking them to go to the Commonwealth and make a strong case for dropping that. Um, so let's so it see. Like so there's still um, a, a real need for law reform in this issue. The job's definitely not done, but uh, we're making progress, it would seem. Yeah, that's certainly the case, yeah. Lots of progress, sort of two steps forward, one step back, backwards. Um, but, I mean, we're closer to proclamation than we have been for the last 1,200 days, so there are some small wins yeah. that we can celebrate. Yeah. Yeah, well done. Well, Marcus Ford from the International Justice Mission, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Lyle. There's no doubt the IJM are doing great work to get this bill back on the agenda. I also spoke to the author of the bill, Paul Green. Well, Paul Green, uh, great to have you with me, joining me on uh, Macquarie Street. Uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, it's great to be with you again, Lyle. Paul, so um, as well, sorry. It's a really important topic. Um, and before we get into the tax of uh, the manoeuvring in the parliament at the moment, just um, update our audience. Uh, why did you introduce the Modern Slavery Act? What motivated you to, to take action as a parliamentarian in this space? Well, a little while ago now, I was watching a film that drew my attention to uh, human trafficking, particularly of girls. And then I um, uh, was thinking of my daughters travelling globally and being entrapped in this situation and I just thought this is this is crazy does this you know this is is this happening in Australia and then I sort of came back um, did a bit of research from that after watching that and realized that actually this was quite a poignant uh, matter not just globally uh, but growing in our neighborhood sadly in Australia and so uh, having the balance of power I thought I could do something uh, really good with that balance of power and use it uh, be a voice for the voiceless yet again. Well, how hard was it to get uh, a bill into the parliament on modern slavery? What sort of opposition did you face? Well, look, no one wants to agree that human trafficking is good or modern slavery is good. So, I mean, you know, uh, front and centre of public, everyone's going to agree with my bill. But I can assure you behind the scenes uh, there was a bit of contestation. Uh, you know, big business doesn't want it to the degree because it's quite... Uh, um, you know, it's quite demanding in terms of them being accountable for the products that they're, uh, re, you know, receiving from a, across the ocean and who's making those products and is there, is there slavery involved in, in those uh, products? Uh, you know, students coming to study in Australia, that they, they think they're coming here to study and then they're ripped aside to work in businesses uh, for next to nothing, locked, uh, locked away uh, until they pay their bill, and which is quite often increased three, four uh, 10, 50-fold, and then sent back to their nation. You know, just uh, lots of, you know, just absolute evil. Uh, so it's not something that's happening um, just offshore. It actually happens onshore, particularly with these vulnerable uh, my, uh, immigrant workers. 
Yeah, look, uh, I guess, you know, people think oh, in Australia, and this is, this is part of the thing that the human trafficking inquiry really uh, unraveled and, and made it very clear that there, there is a scenario in Australia that uh, people travelling into Australia are quite often used or abused. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, the people, on, uh, the fruit pickers, so to speak, uh, uh, where they've been abused and they've been locked up on properties and, and, you know, all they can do is fruit pick and they get paid bottom dollar. Uh, they're not allowed to do any social things, not allowed to travel. And, you know, uh, so the, apparently about 15,000, that was last time during the inquiry, up to 15,000 people in Australia have been caught up in modern-day slavery uh, yeah. uh, sort of entrapment situation. Yep. No, that's huge. So, um, as you said a moment ago, um, you know, supporting uh, an anti-slavery bill—it's—it's it's a bit like motherhood and apple pie. But the, yeah. there was intense opposition behind the scenes, and I think evidence of that is the fact that right now in the New South Wales Parliament, there's an attempt going on to water down your legislation, uh, and, yes. and particularly, you know, to. Um, really defang it in terms of the, the threshold of companies that this applies to. So the government's looking at raising the threshold uh, from $50 million to $100 million. What sort of uh, – that's the turnover of companies that are required to report on uh, slavery in their supply chains. What sort of impact is, is the lifting of that threshold going to have? Look, a really good question. I, I guess when I, I travelled – you've got to understand this, uh, Lyle, that I travelled um, – to the United States and to Commonwealth countries to study human trafficking and what they're up to and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, I brought that information back and we found out in London, you know, in UK, that their, their threshold for companies to report is about 38, uh, 38 million pounds, which is equivalent of about 50 million Australian dollars. And so my threshold for companies to have to report about their supply chains is $50 million, which makes it globally re relevant. Um, I did have representations from a, a now minister from the federal government trying to tell me to don't go ahead with the bill. We've got this, um, 50 million's too low. And as you see now, big business has obviously been able to get in the ear of these people and say, look, we don't want to be accountable, uh, you know, $50 million, it's not a lot, you know, we can't afford it. I mean, these are the, these people that have been oppressed and suppressed behind the scenes for next to nothing to make products that we can all find very convenient in this first world scenario, it's absolute rubbish in this day and age that we can't be ethically responsible with our products and our product line. In saying that, I know there's some global companies that are providing, you know, like 14,000 products, you know, and that's a lot to go down every line and find out about um, slavery or, you know, um, childhood uh, slavery or, you know, practices of, of that sort of scenario uh, behind the product line. But really it was a good faith thing that, hey, isn't this a good thing if we could all combine together? 50 million threshold is a global threshold. Mm. Let's stick with that. Uh, and if you're if you're doing a modern slavery uh, statement somewhere in some other country like England, America, or something like that, well, just give us that report. I'm okay with that. I don't want you to go and reinvent the wheel. Just be transparent about where your product's coming from, how much you're paying for your product, who is producing your product, because most of us really don't want to be contributing to modern day slavery in yeah. any form of yeah. any product across the globe or at home here in Australia. 
Well, this is fascinating. You know, the fact that the international benchmark, um, you know, if you take the equivalent of the British pounds, it's, you know, translates roughly 50 million Australian dollars. We're looking to double that. That, that to me says we're not serious about trying to root out modern slavery. And, and here we are, you know, um, a couple of years, well, your bill was passed in uh, the middle of 2018. Here we are in 2021. The bill still hasn't been proclaimed, hasn't come into effect, and the government's amending it to essentially, uh, as I said, said earlier, defang it and, and really strip it of its ability to uh, protect uh, modern slaves uh, or certainly protect the vast majority. I, I, I mean, yeah. it, it would be a, a much smaller number of slaves that were being protected uh, if this is lifted to uh, companies of, of over $100 million. So it makes you, it feels like it's almost a pointless exercise. As you say, big business has got in the ear of the politicians. Yeah. Well, you look at someone like Twiggy Forrest, who's doing a great job in this area, and, and he uh, certainly makes it very clear to his supply chain that I understand of all the companies that have to supply him, that they've got to be very transparent about what product they're supplying to him. And if Twiggy Forrest can do it, who's a billionaire, obviously, okay, but he is making all these suppliers right down the line who are supplying him, you know, probably less than $50 million because it's good business practice, yeah. Lyle, to, to put mm -hmm. forward these modern slavery statements, whether you're $50 million over or $50 million under. Who really cares? Surely as a human being, we have an absolute uh, obligation to make sure that we're not oppressing people uh, across the globe for it to be, become rich on the back of slavery. Yeah. So, Paul, um, as this is now under live consideration in the New South Wales Parliament that we vote uh, any day now, uh, what's your message to the politicians that are sitting in the New South Wales Upper House who are about to vote to essentially, you know, defang uh, and, and, you know, allow uh, companies between $50 and $100 million to, to get away with modern slavery in their supply chains? What's your message to the politicians deliberating on this? Well, I, I, I think they just need to be aware that um, every, every, every leader that they're, uh, or uh, every law that they're pulling back on potentially exposes another vulnerable person to be exploited. Mm -hmm. And my message to them is this bill was in no way deficient. deficient. It had experts from across the field, all the great networks that have been working on modern slavery action in Australia from the not-for-profits, uh, you know, it was entirely built the right way. Uh, this has just been a little furphy to say it's deficient so we can get our, our uh, dare I say, grubby hands on it to remove some of the things that uh, some of our, our, uh, our supporters, so to speak, are very concerned about. And I have no problem that they're very concerned. I mean, I'm pro-business, mate, and I'm pro-jobs. Um, but at the end of the day, to make money on the back of exploitation that, that's not good enough. So our politicians in New South Wales have a responsibility. You know, don't pull those levers. Leave the bill alone. It's the toughest bill in the world. That's what the UK Anti-Slavery Commissioner Kevin Hyland said. This was world-leading legislation in its current form. Uh, so really, I mean, it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to come on the desk today in Parliament and it's going to be debated and that's politics. But Paul, do you, you think know, um, Liberal, Liberal Party donors have... Do you think Liberal Party donors have got in the ear of the government? Oh, look, I can't say because I've, I've got no evidence of that, but I can tell you that Liberal Party is obviously pro-business and that they would be squeezed by some representations on this matter. I think it's just 
disingenuous uh, because they backed me all the way publicly with this bill. And to go, you know, put it on the shelf for three years, I mean, people have been suffering for three years behind the scene because the government didn't get off its hand and do what it generally told the public it was going to do. They froze the bill, they've left it on the shelf, and now they're being forced to actually do something about it. Now, I'm I'm not going to bag the government. I'm happy that something's happening and it's potentially going to be proclaimed in January. So, look, Lyle, I guess for me is the sooner we can get this active, the sooner... Uh, vulnerable people will be released, set free, be able to uh, re-establish their lives and get on with uh, all that they've been given to do and be all yeah. that they wish to be. Yeah, no, you raise a good point. Um, look, yes, we, we mightn't like this watering down that's going on, but uh, at least uh, get it proclaimed, get it in action. And, of course, there's a review period built into the bill, uh, thanks to you know terrific drafting by yourself. Um, so this can be revisited in the future. Um, so, oh, Paul yeah, Green, it, look, yeah. sorry, go, it, Paul. It, just, it, it, will, it will be reviewed in one year, which is really quick. It doesn't give it time to do its work, but you've got well, to we take what the you pressure up. We can things. keep the pressure up on that threshold issue through the review process. Yeah. People like you, Lyle, and this podcast will be really helpful. Uh, for the people out there, please just get to your local MP. Make sure that you make your voice known that, hey, this is a really important bill. It needs to be left alone in terms of its strength and let it go forward and set people free. Very good. Paul Green, thanks very much for joining us today on Macquarie Street. Thanks once again, uh, Lyle. It's been, it's been good. And thanks for raising this topic. It's a very important topic. Absolute pleasure. Well done to Paul Green on getting that bill up. I'll let you know how this progresses as the debate continues over coming days and weeks in the New South Wales Parliament. You can see, though, why it is so important to have strong Christian voices in the Parliament. Well, thanks for your company again on Macquarie Street. Keep an eye out over the coming week for developments in the New South Wales euthanasia uh, debate that's running through the Parliament at the moment. Uh, You can follow me on Facebook. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at at Lyle Shelton. Lots more information can be found at lyleshelton.com.au where I blog. I want to thank Dave Pillow and Aidan from The Good Source News for providing production for Macquarie Street. Make sure you check out The Good Source News. Good Source News. Next week, I'll be bringing you my interview with uh, a former chairman of the Australian Christian Lobby, a friend and a mentor of mine, Tony McClellan. He's just written an amazing book about his extraordinary life, which is full of gems and life lessons. You won't want to miss next week's edition of Macquarie Street. Until then, keep praying for our nation. God bless you.